Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. Let's go ahead and uh, let's open in our Bibles, if you have not already, to Matthew chapter 5. And specifically, uh, let's read together verses 13 through 16, and then we'll open in prayer. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pause here this morning and we thank you so much, Lord, for the time that we have already had together as we've worshipped you in song. And, and we desire now, Lord, to worship you in the study of your word, to bring our lives before you and to surrender our lives to you and to your word to allow your word by the power of your spirit to speak into our lives and into our hearts and bring transformation, knowing, Lord, that as a people who desire to follow after you, Lord Jesus, we need to align our lives with your word. That is much of what the Sermon on the Mount is about, is is about what our lives should look like. And so, Lord, give us eyes to see that here this morning. Help us to receive what you have for us. And, Lord, do a necessary work in our hearts such that we would be a people Lord, open to the work of you and your spirit in our lives, Lord. We hang on tightly to many things, Lord. We resist change oftentimes. Lord, there's things in our lives that we may not want to let go of, but Lord, you call us to a higher standard, to a higher ethic. And so, Lord, do a necessary work in our hearts here this morning, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I have to apologize for those who are a part of our Salt and Light Youth Retreat this weekend. Some of this is going to be repeat, although some of it will be new as well, things that I didn't share over the past couple of days. It was not my plan, as is often the case, that I would align where we're at in Scripture here this weekend with where we were at for our youth conference the past two days. It's the Lord that did that, and so I'm going to trust that it's the Lord who really wants us to understand what he means when he says that we're to be salt and light, because literally for some of you, you've been studying this now, for this will be the third day that you've considered this passage of Scripture. Oftentimes when that happens, we need to go, okay, Lord, I'm listening, right? I, I get it, Lord. You want me to know this. You want me to, to receive this. And by the way, thank you to those of you who were praying for us at our youth conference the past couple of days. We needed it. You might have heard that there were some severe storms that came through the area the past couple of days. If you didn't experience them yourselves, let me tell you, the first storm that came on Friday hit, I think the epicenter was Windmill Farms in Elgin. I think that's exactly where it was like, that was where it was the strongest. And it hit right about four o'clock, which is when we started registration in the process of setting up tents. I've never seen anybody try to set up a tent in the middle of such a storm before, but we saw it on Friday and it was in intense. Did you get that? Did you see what I did there? Yeah. That was good, wasn't it? That was well played. <clears throat> I really didn't even mean to do that. It just sort of came to me. Um, it, was, it was crazy. And, and, and we had, mul- you know those pop-up canopies? Those pop-up tents that give you a little bit of shade? Let me tell you, those don't handle a storm very well. 
you can go check the dumpster after the service if you want and see the four pop-up tents that are no more and are just, just rubble in the dumpster. And then, and then we got back here yesterday. This was probably about, uh, we were pushing 6 o'clock at that point, I think, unloading things here. And the, the other epic storm, which knocked out our internet, hit here again. And come to find out from, from the Hellmans, it, it didn't happen out there. So the common denominator now is I showed up at the camp at 4 o'clock and a storm hit, and I showed up back here to unload and the storm hit, and I'm thinking, okay, Lord, I'm listening, okay? <laughs> it was awesome. What the Lord did through that time was pretty great and how he changed our plans. There were so many things that we wanted to do, planned to do. There's things that we planned to do this morning. There's things that we, that we, we go, hey, we're going to come in, we're going to set up the computers, and we're going to live stream, we're going to do all this. And it's like, man... So quickly, how often are we having to learn this? Maybe it's me that's having to learn this, that the Lord can just say, no, not now. you got to be ready to align yourself to my plan. right?" And I think in many respects, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's, it's not necessarily about a change of plan so much, although that can certainly be the case. But it is about us going, Lord, you, you, you're different. You call us to be different. You birthed your church and you said that you're to be set apart. You're to be different. You're to be unlike the world when we consider the sermon on the mount and and where it begins in the beatitudes which we considered last week and we'll review here shortly he's saying this is how you're to live your life it's different than what you see in the world the beatitudes there in in verses 1 through 12 those serve as the foundation of the sermon on the mount it gives us insight into the higher ethic that jesus has come to teach He says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Most people in this world don't strive to be poor or poor in spirit, to have an awareness of just how destitute we are, that in in us there's nothing good. But of course that brings us to a place where we understand that we have nothing to offer the Lord other than our lives, and that's it. That's the only thing that we we may be possessed that we can bring to the Lord, but that's that's exactly what He wants. He wants our lives. And in our awareness of how destitute we are in spirit, we come to a place of mourning, mourning over our sin, mourning over the sin of others, mourning over the sin of this world. And as we do that, we come to a place where we we become meek. And remember, meekness is not weakness, but rather it's it's strength brought under control. It's about discipline. It's about coming to a place where we say, okay, I'm, I'm willing to give you my life now, Lord. I want to serve you. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Every one of these things truly runs counter to our culture. Every one of these things, we could look at something in our world today and say, our world tells us to be different than that. Our world tells us to be prideful, aggressive, to take what we want, to pursue it, to do all these different things. And Jesus says, no, you're called to be set apart. You're called to be changed. I want to transform you. I want you to see how I view things. I want you to have my heart and in my mind. And then as he begins to conclude this, again, this being the foundation, the, the Beatitudes, those really verses 3 through 10, that serves as the, it's the foundation. It's the main structure by which the rest of the Sermon on the Mount sets upon that. And then he comes into verses 11 and 12 and he says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. And they say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He, said, he comes to this place and he says persecution 
is what's going to come in the short term, but you have a reward in the long run. Now, as you consider these things, Jesus saying here, here's all the ways in which you should be. This is what your life should look like. Here's how you should live, and it's different than everything in the world. And, and oh, by the way, when you live this way, the world's really going to hate you. They're going to persecute you, but don't worry. You've got a reward in heaven. You might think, and you could even make an argument to say, Man, if this is all so countercultural, if I'm, if I'm going to endure suffering in the short term, but really my reward is in the long run, it's in eternity, then maybe I should just go ahead and retreat from the world. Maybe we should just retreat within the walls of the church where there's familiar faces and opinions and, and where we respect one another and we don't persecute each other because we believe the same things. Maybe we should go ahead and just... Well, let's, let's have a compound, a commune, and let's just go and separate ourselves from the world. I think you could make an argument to say, in light of all this, that seems like a good idea. In fact, John writes, after all, in, in 1 John in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, It's not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world is passing away. And the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And so even more, I could look at that and say, see, the world's passing away. It's worthless. It has nothing for me. And sadly, the church, I think, whether intentionally and having said it out loud or maybe just in the back of their minds, we've convinced ourselves that that's what we should do. And I'm of the opinion that because of that, we are seeing much of what we're seeing today in our culture because the church has thought, we'll just retreat. We'll just stay within the walls of the church. And we miss things like where Jesus himself prays in John chapter 17 and verses 15 through 19. This is Jesus. Remember, this is the longest prayer we have of Jesus in John 17. He's praying, of course, to the Father. And he says, I do not pray. Listen. I do not pray that you, being the Father, should take them, us, out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Jesus says, don't take them out of the world, but protect them. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth, and so set them apart. Jesus is praying, set us apart, because we're not of the world, but he says this, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. You see, Jesus there, as he so often does, shatters anything that we may be thinking about what makes sense based off of what we read in in his word when we want to, out of safety and comfort and protection, retreat from the world. Jesus says, no, I sent you into the world. And I'm praying that you'd be protected from the evil one. I'm praying that you'd be sanctified, set apart, but in the world. You see, we may not be of the world, We're called, yes, to be quite different, but we are called to go into it. The question would be then, to do what? Well, we know the answer to that question. Whether you know it or not, you see it every Sunday when you come into this room. To make disciples, to fulfill the Great Commission. The mission we've been given is Matthew 28, 19-20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of just a couple households in your neighborhood. No, of all the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe some of the things that I've commanded you. No, all of the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So where do we need to go? Into the world. And listen, we don't have to go very far. America was never a Christian nation. Some people take issue with that. America was a nation founded on Christian principles, largely comprised of professing Christians. But I don't believe that we can say that we were a distinctly Christian people and nation. But some may want to disagree on that, and, that, and that's fine. We don't need to argue that point. What I think we can probably all agree on, regardless of where you may think we began, is that certainly where we are now is a post-Christian culture. And our culture, our country, maybe I'll just say our neighbors to make it personal, they need one to Christ. They need to be one to Christ. Friends, the greatest Christian mission field is right outside these doors for us. Now, am I making an argument to say we don't do international missions anymore? No, I think we should do both. But we have a Christian mission field right out here. You will enter it today when you walk out of these doors. Now, to clarify, because many in the church today are not familiar with the mission field as much as maybe the church was some time ago when we saw the, I don't want to call it the birth of, because uh, we've seen missions work from the very beginning as the disciples went out. But there was a time in church history where missions was, was very much being pushed. I mean, we saw the gospel going throughout the world to unreached nations, unreached people groups that, quite frankly, today we hear a lot less about because gospel has very much saturated much of the world. And so, we're less familiar with it today, and I, I recently read an article by Tim Keller who, who he entitled the article, How to Reach the West Again. And he says this, <clears throat> a missionary encounter, I think this is so fitting, is not a withdrawal from culture into communities with little connection to the rest of society, nor is it an effort to get political power in order to impose Christian standards and beliefs on an unwilling populist. You think, I think much of the church today thinks that our mission field is through politics. You cannot legislate revival. I've said it a million times. Nor is it, he says, such an effort to become relevant that the church becomes completely adapted to and assimilated by the culture, which the church has also done. Do you know how many of you who've been walking with the Lord for a while have found it amazing that when any new fad comes through our culture, whether that's clothing, whether that's music, anything that may be popular, it doesn't take all that long for the church to go, how can we make that work for us? Where in Scripture do we see Jesus say, when popular things come along, figure out how to fit in and make the church look like that? No, we're called to be distinct. We're called to be set apart. He says, They're not of the world, so sanctify them by your truth. Set them apart, but then send them into the world. Keller writes, instead, a missionary encounter connects, unlike the strategies of withdrawal, yet confronts, unlike the strategies of assimilation, and therefore actually, listen, actually converts people, unlike all the strategies, including that of political takeover. A church having a missionary encounter also maintains its distinctiveness 
and it often affirms and always serves neighbors what the assimilation approach wants, and it calls people to repent and change what the politically assertive approach wants. All that to say, he says it's a distinctly different organism that goes out into the world and confronts people and causes them to change. Not the other way around. And sadly, for far too long, that's what the church has done. Christian, this is what we are called to. And so in light of that, let's look at what Jesus says then next, which we already read in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? What is salt? It's a preservative. It's a seasoning. I heard both of those things. I was actually looking for you to say it's a chemical compound, <laughs> sodium chloride. Somebody thought that. You just didn't want to say it out loud. You're like, I'll be, they'll call me a nerd. <clears throat> That's literally what it is. It's a chemical compound. It's a natural substance in this world, and we use it mostly for flavoring of food today. That's its most common use, unless, of course, you live in Michigan and you have some other uses for it. We have these things called water softeners, and you fill those up with salt on a regular basis. That was always kind of weird to me. And, of course, you can throw it out on the sidewalk to melt the ice and give yourself traction uh, when you're in the uh, frozen rotunda for six months of the year. Historically, salt has possessed great value for that same reason, for, for flavoring, but also for preserving. Salt uh, possessing great value as a commodity throughout history has often then become synonymous even with money. Salt had such great value that even the word that we kind of take for granted today, salary, anybody familiar with salary, not salary, salary, the money thing, it has its root in salt. That's where sayings like, he's not worth his salt, comes from. Which goes back to really what a Roman soldier was paid, and the amount that he was paid was kind of the equivalent of an amount of salt that he might need for his own personal well-being. Or so they say. There's a lot of different views on how salt and some of these different things. But it was important. But here Jesus, because he says to us that the salt loses its flavor, we have somewhat of a sense of, of how he's using or, or viewing this commodity. Jesus here is speaking in terms of its flavor or, if, or its efficacy, how well it works. And yes, it's a preservative as well for those who are uh, seeking to preserve meat without or in the absence of refrigeration. You need salt in order to keep the meat from decaying and turning. So how does salt lose its flavor? This also has become the point of contention for many because those who want to say, see, Jesus didn't know what he was talking about would say things like, well, sodium chloride is actually very stable and it doesn't really lose its qualities. It doesn't lose its flavor and that would be true, but it doesn't mean Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. Because in fact, the only way for salt really to lose its flavor is for it to be diluted, watered down, or for impurities to be added in. Oh, Jesus was actually pretty smart, wasn't he? That kind of makes sense. Jesus says, we are the salt of the earth. And so Christian, you are to be a preservative in a lost, dying, and decaying earth. You're to be a seasoning in a bland world. But Jesus cautions against losing our flavor, which comes from dilution and contamination. What do you suppose dilutes our saltiness, contaminates our saltiness? The world. The world. 
You see, Jesus has said here, you're the, so, you're the preservative. You've got to go out into the world and to preserve it, to keep this thing from, from dying, knowing full well it's on its way. But the, the, the fact that Jesus has us here still means that there is preservative work to be done in this world. From an eschatology perspective, when we are taken out, Believing, I believe in a, in a pre-tribulational rapture, if you look at Scripture, when we are taken out and with us, the Holy Spirit, what happens? Tribulation. Boom! Just like that. The world starts to completely go in the wrong direction. We are a preservative. But if we allow the world to come in to us, if we assimilate to the world, we begin to dilute our flavor to contaminate our substance. If we are living on mission, evangelistically speaking, what we need to understand is that people look at our life and they look at whether we live out what we say, the things that we speak, or is that what our life looks like? And so we need to maintain our flavor. We need to maintain our saltiness. We have to be a people who practice what we preach, who when we are out in the world, that our lives actually serve their purpose of preserving, of adding flavor, of being a seasoning to this world. Does your life match up? And some people would say, well, I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm not perfect. How can, I be, how can I be perfect? And while we won't get there today, I'll jump ahead and I'll say, look at verse 48 if you would for a moment. What does it say? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, I know, and we don't have enough time to really dive into this one here this morning, but we look at that and we say, well, that can't really mean what he says it means. And so what do we do? We start to dilute it. We start to bring in contaminants. Well, I think that really means this. It can't really mean that. Let me water it down a little bit. Ah, now I feel better. Now I can go ahead and not be very salty out in the world, not be very effective, and it's okay, though. Jesus didn't really mean perfect. Now, do I think that you can achieve a level of perfection at the level of Jesus? No, I don't. There's only one perfect. But this is where we have to, as I've said several times already, we have to take seriously what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. We just can't read through it and go, wow, that was pretty, pretty philosophical, pretty powerful stuff there. I'll move on now. No, we've got to really take it in and go, man, this is what Jesus was teaching his followers. This is how you're to live. And yes, we will get there. And his statement that says, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect, comes after he gives flips the script, if you will, on a number of different things, and he talks about uh, hatred being compared to murder. He talks about uh, lust being compared to adultery. He talks about uh, the importance of marriage. He talks about the importance of, of, of oaths and your, your yes being yes. He talks about if somebody asks you to go one mile, you go two with them. He talks about loving your enemies. And, and so it's after he goes through all of those things and says, see, this is what your life should look like. This is about love. This is about how you're to love. And, and I am love. And so if you begin to do these things, you'll be like me. And so that's what Jesus is saying there. And we'll consider that more in a couple of weeks. But we don't just get to go and dismiss things because it seems hard to us. Because Jesus says, what happens if we lose our saltiness? He says, and let me rephrase this differently. You are then good for nothing. 
but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Salt becomes useless when it's contaminated and watered down. And sadly, far too many Christians today have become useless. Now you might say, man, that sounds really discouraging right now. Well, I can say that because we serve a God who is gracious and merciful. A God who, no matter what we do, we never put ourselves beyond his reach and his capability of restoring us. But let's not water it down. And because we get offended too easily, not be willing to say, maybe my life has become useless for the cause of Christ. See, Jesus goes from here, and they have to be thinking at this moment, man, this is challenging. Hopefully you're thinking this is challenging as we really seriously consider the Word of God. And he encourages them again. He says, you are the light of the world. And I can look out at you today, and, 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 and any one of you professing to, have, to know Jesus Christ and for His Holy Spirit to indwell you as a believer, I can say to you, you are the light of the world. Now this ought to sound absolutely incredible for us if we know Scripture well because Jesus says in, in John chapter 9, verse 5, as long as I am in this world, I am the light of the world. And so Jesus, who declares himself to be the light of the world, looks at his followers and he says, you are the light of the world. Have you ever grown desensitized as a Christian to the fact that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead indwells you as a believer? has sealed you, has put a promise on you that says you will forever be with me in paradise, that I am in you and working in you and working through you and empowering you and equipping you. And how often do we walk around this world in fear and anxiety and thinking, oh, what are we going to do? You're the light of the world. You have the power that raised Jesus from the dead inside of you. Can I get an amen on that? Yes. <laughs> Guys, you are powerful. Christian, you are powerful. Holy smokes. But we want to run and hide. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Try and hide. It's not going to work. You can't. If you profess to be a Christian, you can't hide. But persecution's coming for me. Yes, it is. And so we got to toughen up. There's plenty who were following Jesus, and when he started to get real, they said, this is too much, I can't take it. And they proved that they weren't really followers, and they walked away. I'm going to trust that you're a true follower of Jesus, and I'm going to say, toughen up and get ready. We're seeing it all across the country, guys. The persecution's growing. It is. Plain and simple, it is. And don't be scared by that, because you have power. Verse 15, nor did they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let's stop trying to hide that light and let's let it shine. Because there's a dark world out there and people who need a beacon of hope. And it's you. Why did Jesus choose to use us? You don't think he's a big enough God that he could show up right now and do it his way and say, here I am. Everybody just come to me. He'll do that eventually. But for right now, he said, I want to use you. I want to use you guys. Because I've made you in my image. And because your lives tell an incredible story of redemption, of reconciliation. And so I want you to go out and live on mission, to be salt and light. And when you do, I'll get the glory. Or maybe some of you are robbing this world from the salt and light that they need. Now how is it that we are to be visible? Okay, I'm ready. I'm going to put my light on that lampstand. I'm ready to go. Let the world see me. What do I do? He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Okay, it's the good works. So I've got to go work at the soup kitchen. 
It's not about just going and, okay, I'll just go volunteer. Now listen, that is good, and that may be wonderful, but what are good works? Is it the things we say? It's got to be the things we say. I've got to just say lots of things. I've got to season this world with the grace of my words. Speaking of which, it's got to be the things we post, right? That's it. My good, the world, all my followers can see my good works with a filter at the right angle with my opinion. That'll get them. Wait, wait, wait. November's coming. It's my political involvement. Certainly. Slap an elephant or a donkey on my bumper. That'll get them. Whoa, wait, I touched a nerve there. No, Jesus said that they might see your good works. This is how your faith is most seen and Jesus most glorified. And what are good works? It's obedience. And so, yes, it may be going and doing this or going and serving here only if that comes from a proper reading of Scripture and going, this is what Jesus wants me to do. And so, you see, we're just getting into this thing. Have you, have you captured yet how important the Sermon on the Mount is? We're at verse 16 of the first chapter of three chapters. And so you want to know what good works are? He's going to tell us. And he's going to say things like, love your enemy. He's going to say things like, if you even lust after her, you're guilty of adultery in your heart. He's going to say things like, judge not that you be not judged. Stop looking at the speck in your brother's eye when you got a log sticking out of yours. And listen, I'm a, I'm a very much fallible man, and so the tone in which I'm using right there, I highly doubt is the tone that Jesus used. He's going to tell us what good works are, and so good works are about obedience. It's about saying, I'm going to do what you have told me to do, and when I do it, you'll get the glory. It's about obedience. It's God's love language. Now, this is a wonderful thing and an encouragement to us when we see this here. We go, okay, so people will see that I'm obedient to the Word of God. I'm obedient to you, Lord Jesus, and, and you'll be glorified. And yes, absolutely. And the implication here, because this is in the positive, is that there are some people who are going to be attracted to that, and they're going to be saved because of that, because they're going to go, man, that's, that's different. I like that. That's unusual. And I want to know more about that. And praise God, some people are going to be saved. But we can't forget about what Jesus said in verses 11 and 12. As he said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. And so what we need to understand is that some people are going to be attracted to it and some people are going to hate it. And chances are the ones who are attracted will be a little bit quieter and the ones who hate it are the ones you're really going to hear. Sometimes others may glorify God and other times they'll persecute you, but that does not mean we stop living our lives for the glory of Christ. Jesus said elsewhere in John chapter 15, verses 19 and 20, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus here, when he says, remember, a servant is not greater than his master, ought to cause us to go, man, am I experiencing persecution? Does the world hate me? I've got to be careful with this because I by no means want to send you guys out on a mission to make everybody hate you. It's a way to drop attendance at church quickly. But as has been the theme thus far, I can't ignore passages like Luke 6.26 when it says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. 
And you know what? It's really hard for somebody like myself who loves the affirmation of other men, who longs to hear people say, good job, great work, I like you. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Now yes, we can expect within the body of Christ that we're going to think well of each other. But how's your relationship with the world today? How's the world feel about you? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Well, I don't think I like that. I don't think that Christianity is supposed to be that way, some people say. Or, or well, you know, we live in America, though, and it's such a Christianized culture that I think that's why I just kind of fit in. Are you sure that's it, or is it maybe that you're just not acting like Jesus all the time? Let's consider this for a moment as we start to close. If I went out in the world today, if I went somewhere where there's a group of maybe 50 or more people that were socially distanced, six feet apart with masks on, and I began to just share things. It's a, it's a diverse group of people from all over the community. There's a, the only thing that's brought us together, let's say, is Walmart. And I went out there and I said, I want everybody to know that I am absolutely for, entirely about, want to do everything I can to ensure that we are a multiracial, multi-ethnic group of people highly committed, to care, highly committed to caring for the poor and the marginalized in society. I'll go to great lengths to ensure that those things happen. How do you think that would be received? At that moment, probably fairly well. In light of our current culture, I would suspect that there'd probably be a few people who would be like, eh, I don't, I don't know that I like where this is going. Sounds a little liberal. If I went a step further and I said, and I also want you to know that I, I want people to be highly uh, non-retaliatory, at peace, focused on forgiveness, I'd probably have some more people go, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with that. Or some people go, well, what do you mean by peace and non-retaliatory? I have a right to bear arms, you know. And then what if I did this? And I am strongly and practically against in every way, shape, and form abortion and infanticide. And I want everybody to know that I stand firmly opposed, though I love all people, that I am highly opposed to all things that are LGBTQ. Man, I just cleared the parking lot, didn't I? Some of you people say, well, you had me here, but you lost me over here. Do you know what I just described to you? In every one of those statements, the church. Are you willing to uphold all five? Because I guarantee you this, all five will not be on one party or the other's ballot in November. Will not be. What are you going to do? I'm not here to give you a political message. I'm here to tell you what the church is to be about. Keller writes this later in his article that I referenced earlier. He says the early Christian community was both offensive and also attractive. Believers did not construct their social project in some strategic way to reach Roman culture. Keller says each element of the church was there because Christians sought to submit to biblical authority. They're all commanded. They are just as category defined, both offensive and attractive today. The first two views that I mentioned, ethnic diversity and caring for the, for, for the poor, they sound liberal. The last two, abortion and sexual ethics, they sound conservative. The one in the middle about peace is sort of like, eh, eh, what kind of peace are you talking about? Churches today, Keller says, are under enormous pressure to jettison 
the first two or the last two, but not keep them all. Yet to give up any of them, he says, would make Christianity the handmaid of a particular political program and undermine a missionary encounter. Do you not think that the church today, and by extension of that, the people in the church, otherwise known as Christians, have become hostages to political ideology? And more than just political ideology, I would have to say, friends, we've lost some saltiness. Some lights are on a dimmer switch. I'm going to invite the worship team up to close this out in a song. I found this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and it says this. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. Listen, guys, the world does not need deluded disciples who blend in with their surroundings and cast a dim light. The world needs potent, salty disciples whose light shines bright and whose life serves to demonstrate and declare the truth of the gospel. That's evangelism. It is both a declaration and a demonstration of truth. In 2 Corinthians in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Paul writes this, and I'll close. You yourselves are our testimonial written in our hearts and yet open for anyone to inspect and read. You are an open letter about Christ which we ourselves have written, not with pen and ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Our message has been engraved not in stone, but in living men and women. What is the gospel of Brennan or the gospel of Jimmy or the gospel of Renee or the gospel of David? What does that gospel say? Friends, is your life salty and bright? The world needs it. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we pause and thank you once more, Lord, for our time together and for your word. Your word, Lord, which you exalt above your own name and you've given us, Lord, and you've given us your Holy Spirit that we might understand it and grasp it. But Lord, if we admit, it's heavy. It's difficult. It's increasingly challenging in the day in which we live. But Lord, also, if we're honest, that gives us no excuse to disregard it but to humbly consider it and how it might impact our lives. And I include myself in that chief of all here as I stand here this morning. But Father, I don't want any one of us to find ourselves like those followers who were with you there in Capernaum who said, this is too hard and turn away. But rather, we would be people like Peter who would say to you, Lord Jesus, where else would I go? For you have the words of life that that would be our heart here this morning. And as an extension of that, then we'd be willing to say, so Lord, bring the necessary sanctification and transformation in my life, Lord, to ready me for what you have for me next. And help me to stand with boldness and encourage against an increasingly wicked culture. To not attempt to fit myself into the pattern of the mold of this world, but rather to be transformed by the renewing of my mind, as Romans 12 says that I might test and prove what is your will. And that as I keep it and I'm obedient to it, as you said, Lord Jesus, that others may glorify you. Oh Lord, what a privilege it would be for you to use my life for your glory. I pray that's each of our prayers here this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.com.
www.thepurpose.org.